This is the Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with new and archive interviews from the Probabilities and Bookwaves Artwaves programs on KPFA-FM and Pacifica Syndication. Kate Wilhelm, who died on March 8, 2018 at the age of 89, was probably best known as a science fiction and fantasy author, winning the Hugo Award for Best Novel in 1977 with Where Late the Sweet Bird Sang and the Nebula Award three times for her shorter fiction. Along with her work in science fiction and fantasy, Kate Wilhelm was also an acclaimed mystery and suspense author, with 14 novels in the Barbara Holloway series, six novels in the Lytle and Micklejohn series, and 10 standalone mystery and suspense novels. She was also one of the first teachers at the Clarion Writers Workshop, which began in 1968 and, according to Wikipedia, is still active following a two-year COVID break. On August 5, 1996, my Probabilities co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I sat down with Kate Wilhelm in the KPFA studios while she was on tour for her Barbara Holloway mystery novel, Malice Prepense, which was renamed For the Defense for its paperback release. We talked about that book, along with her early career writing science fiction and fantasy, and her work as a writing instructor. I guess I'll start by asking the most obvious question. Why did you, a very, very well-known and respected science fiction and fantasy author, suddenly move into a completely different realm altogether? Yeah, people always ask that. But people don't know my first novel was a mystery, More Bitter Than Death, and that was a mystery. And off and on over the years, I've done other things that were right on the edge of science fiction and mystery, and sometimes slipped one way and sometimes the other. And I fell off the fence on the mystery side. But I think I'll probably climb back on and fall off the other side from time to time. Well, we're sitting in the room here with someone else who wrote a lot of science fiction and now writes mysteries. And he and I have talked, Dick Lupoff and I have talked at length about the going back and forth between the two genres. So I'm going to turn it over to Dick to ask more questions about that. Well, okay. I, I guess the first question for Kate Wilhelm is, since you were originally better known as a science fiction writer, right. even though your your first novel was a mystery, mm-hmm. your first published story, I believe, was The Pint-Sized Genie. The first published one. Yes. Right. In, in, which was over in the science fiction world uh, back right. in 1956. Mm-hmm. So the question then is, is why and how you got into the science fiction world? A lot of people aren't going to like the answer. When I was a young housewife with two small children, one was a two-year-old who's my mother, who's really a very, who was a very kind, gentle, loving soul, advised me to tie him to a tree so I could get some rest. He was that kind of child. So I had this two-year-old who didn't sleep very much at night and who ran, and I ran after him through the day. And I had a six-year-old. I was doing a lot of reading from the library, which I had always done and still do. I had an anthology of science fiction stories. I was reading one of the stories. My my son had just gone to sleep, and I picked up the anthology and read a quite short story, and it was very bad. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask if you remember the title and all I do, but, <laughs> but I'll never tell. <laughs> it was very bad. And I closed the book and put it down, and I said, I can do that. 
Not I can do better than that. I, I, can do I that. gave myself permission to write a bad story. <laughs> what year was that? That was 1956. Then you're saying that uh, The Pine Says Genie was not no, your first story. Right. The first story I wrote was A Mile Long Spaceship. Yeah. And I looked in the back. I wrote it by hand. I knew nothing, nothing about writing, about publishing, about format, about anything. But I knew I had to type it. So I rented a typewriter, and I typed the story. And I started as high on the page as you can start, and I filled it, <laughs> and then filled another page. And at the bottom of it, I put my name and address. And looked in the back of the anthology. The first name there of publication was Astounding Magazine. I had never seen a science fiction magazine in my life. So why not? And I sent it to Astounding, and John Campbell, in a few weeks, sent me a check for $117. He also sent a form that had to be notarized, saying I was the author of that story. So I bought the typewriter with a $117 check, and I've been in business ever since. <laughs> it just happenstance that it was science fiction. I didn't know science fiction from anything else. Where, where were you living at that time? Louisville, Kentucky. Okay, so this was well before the, the Milford era. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you say you knew nothing about science fiction, yet you come in with a story which still is fondly remembered, followed it up with a number of different fantasy stories, and yet you were not familiar with the field not or the all. conventions at all. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, Fred Pohl, no, it was Jim Blish, who told me I had to stop writing and do some reading in the field because I kept reworking other people's ideas but putting such a different kind of slant on it that um, he thought I might damage my own career by that. I knew nothing of the field until I began writing. Well, you also, uh, at least through the early part of your career, focused mostly on short stories and novellas. Yeah. Why those forms, particularly the novella form, which you were a, a master at, and yet it, it's not very commercial? I know. <laughs> I know. My new collection of novellas, The Flush of Shadows, has two novellas that I couldn't even place. They're first published there. I love that length. The twenty to 40,000-word length is so good. I just really like it. I've done a dozen or more. Well, why, why do you like that length in particular, do you think? It's, well, I think it's very liberating. It has enough length to develop an idea and characters and make the whatever point you're trying to make without the padding that I think 90% of novels have. I think commercial novels are novellas that are padded out to a certain length. And the novella is compact enough that it's just very satisfying. I think that is the most satisfying length. You do feel that the novella is a distinct form yeah. d differentiated from the short story or novelette right. and from the novel. I think so. I think so. For me, a short story gives a glimpse just a glimpse of whatever the idea or character or insight, whatever it is. And it may raise more questions than it answers. It may say, what if this, and raise questions. And I like that. But the novella will raise the question and tend to deal with some of the aspects of the answers. And I like that too. 
and and novel, of course, has many interwoven stories, and I like that. But I like all lengths. (laughs) I cannot resist asking you about the Milford era, Mm -hmm. uh, the origins of Uh the the Milford Science Fiction Writers Conference, uh, the Clarion Workshops, and the the famous or infamous days of the so-called Milford Mafia. Oh, dear. <laughs> Jim Plush and Judy Marilyn Damon really started the Milford Conference. Damon well, Knight is your yeah. husband. So. Yeah, Damon Knight's my husband. And they started as, as a writing conference with no lecturing, no chiefs and Indians, everyone on equal footing, all professional writers. And it was very successful because the professional writers had met at conventions, but that's a totally different atmosphere. And they were dealing with fans and publishers. And here they were dealing with other writers. So it was very successful. And after that, they decided to do it annually. I got into it, my first one, I forget what year it was now, 59 or 60. It was maybe 60. I had already published, and they invited me to participate. And this was the first time I ever met a writer when I went to the Milford Conference. And here I met 20 or 25 writers. And it was the most exciting eight days I had ever experienced. I don't think I slept for eight eight nights. It was just too exciting to talk to people who knew what I was talking about. And I'd never had that. Who were the people who attended that, other, other than the founders whom you've already yeah. mentioned? Ted Sturgeon was there. Harlan Ellison was there. Carol Emschwiller and Ed came in. Fred Pohl dropped in. I forget if Arthur Clarke was there for that one or the next one. Uh, Richard McKenna. I, I wanted to ask you in particular about two people who just orbited through the science fiction world in, in and out and became much more famous in general literature, one being Richard McKenna, of course, mm-hmm. and the other being Kurt Vonnegut, mm-hmm. uh, who I believe attended one or two of the Milford He may have done, but it was before my time. I see. He came through Milford after the conference several times. He and his son came through one time looking for covered bridges, which they were <laughs> photographing. So uh, he was he came through Milford, but... In my experience, he never came to the Milford Conference. What about Richard McKenna? Mac had been in the Navy. He was uneducated, out of high school and right into the Navy. And his days in the Navy, he spent reading. And he could quote, I think, all of Kipling and many, many other things. Mac became an extremely dear friend of ours. So after he got out of the Navy, he he went to um, Duke, I think, and graduated with honors three years later and began writing. So he wrote uh, Casey Agonistus, which was his big science fiction story, and a number of other things. And Damon invited him to the Milford Conference. And so Mac and Eva had been, they had been there the year previous to mine. That was their first year. And the following year, I went. And Mac instantly became one of my best friends. He was a wonderfully wise man. And of course, he was one of the best educated men I had never talked to. So we struck up an early friendship and became very, very good friends. It was very unfortunate, I thought, that he was on this extended book tour when he started to write The Sons of Martha. 
And he was halfway through the Sons of Martha, and this book tour took up every minute of his time and his energy. He never finished the novel. He died in his sleep one night, very suddenly. His his best known work, of course, is the Sand Pebbles. Right. right. But whatever became whatever became of the Sons of Martha? They published it as an unfinished work, and with um, some bits and pieces that he had written that never were incorporated yet. But they published it that way. Well, the Milford Conference, were there actual classes? How did the Milford Conference work? What we did was submit one story, and everybody read everybody's work. We sat in a big circle. No no non-writers were allowed. They all had to be in the other rooms of the house. This took place in a very large Victorian house where there was plenty of room to segregate out the non-writers. So the writers sat in a circle, and each one in turn had to critique the story that was up at that time. And I think I learned more about writing through those sessions, not my own work, but having to critique other people's work and listening to people who were much wiser than I was critique work. That was extremely valuable as a learning experience for me. And we learned very early which ones were in sympathy with what we were doing and who wasn't. So uh, Gordy Dixon was um, a good critic, and Carol Amschwiller was really a fine critic. And then after we would do that, oh, about three or four hours, starting about 11, we'd break for lunch sometime in that time. And in the evenings, it would just be a talk fest, and everybody could join that. There would be a given topic. Um, What are your work habits? Or what do you need (laughs) in order to write a book? What kind of research? And and we would start off with a general topic like that, but then it would spread. It would branch out. And we would talk then until very, very, very late. There's a good deal of controversy over the whole issue of writers' conferences and... um, uh, writers' workshops and so forth. I think to, to state the the two extreme positions, one one which I have, I came across a quotation recently from Raymond Chandler to this effect, that it's utterly impossible for anybody to teach anybody to write. It either comes out of your belly or it doesn't. And Writing schools are fraudulent. The The opposite talent is, is still talent, but there is so much craft. There is so much technique that can be taught, discipline also, and practice and criticism uh, that you can pretty much teach people to write. Where do, where do you come out? I don't think you can teach people to write. I think you can teach people what not to do, and I think you can teach craft and many, many techniques. I, I'm, of course, one of the people who was at the first uh, Clarion workshop and taught that for 27 years. So I believe in teaching writing. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't forced to do it at gunpoint. And I have seen students come in there. All of them in the first place are talented. Talented students go to Clarion. So that's almost a given. I've seen many students come in there who absolutely did not recognize any aspect of technique. They simply were telling the stories from the belly, and it was all first-person kind of 
autobiographical storytelling. And once they mastered just a grain of technique and began to control the material, you could see them right before your eyes morphing (laughs) into people who were going to be writers and be published writers, not people who were going to be home frustrated, writing out their soul day after day and never being able to share it with anybody, which I think is one of the things that happens to many people. They don't find anybody who will read what they have written. But these students come out of there with enough technique, enough knowledge about self-criticism, which is very important. I think you have to be able to read your own material with some objectivity before you're going to make it as a writer. And this is the hardest thing in the world for young people to to grasp because it's wonderful or I wouldn't have written it. (laughs) And mom says it's wonderful. Your first novel, you said, was a mystery more Mm -hmm. bitter than death, meaning that you moved into the field long before any other women were writing mysteries, because that would have been the early 60s, correct? Oh, Agatha Christie was there. Yeah, yeah, but... uh, (laughs) And Josephine Tay. There were a few. There were a number of women. On the other side of the ocean, however. Yeah. And then later on, you wrote a series involving Danvers and Michael John, which were detective tales, but with a horror and fantasy twist. Some of them. Some of them. Was that kind of a transition mode? I never have thought of my own work as being this or that. I've found these two characters, Constance Lydell and Charlie Michael John, and they were, you know, running around in my head because I saw him connected with fire and investigating fire. Um, As I explored their characters, they began to develop into this kind of middle-aged couple who are very loving and quite smart, and they will investigate almost anything. And some of the things they do are horror, some are fantasy, some are just straight detective work, and I love writing them because I'm so free to do anything with them that I feel I want to do. And I really enjoy writing them. So I've never thought, I'm going to write a science fiction story and use these two detectives. It's never worked that way. I've never thought that in my life about anything I've written. (laughs) Your first major detective novel of the current era uh, is 1991, Death Qualified. Is that a Barbara Holloway? Yes. Uh, Why did you choose Barbara Holloway, her father, Frank? These are attorneys, uh, father and daughter combination. They work out of Eugene, Oregon, which is where you're from. Why did you do that, and why did you finally decide to write these much longer books when, as you said before, you've always felt more comfortable, it it appears, with shorter work? Well, I wouldn't say that. It's just when I'm writing a novella, I love the novella. And I do see all of these forms as quite distinctively different in structure. I was on jury duty in the 80s. In Eugene, in Oregon, you're selected for one month. And so in that month's period, you have a lot of different kinds of cases. And I was quite flabbergasted by the ineptness of the lawyers I saw. They were bad. Those lawyers were really bad. And I wanted so often to, you know, say, let me ask a question. (laughs) And, of course, that's never allowed. And this really preyed on my mind. And I saw a lot of bad police work. I saw a lot of bad stuff. So this really bothered me, and I didn't realize to what extent it was bothering me until 
how all of my work start is with some kind of a mental image, a vision of something. And in this mental picture, it was a woman addressing a jury, and she was scornful and angry and all of the things that I had felt. And she wasn't me. She was this younger uh, attorney. And I realized I had a character because when I get an image like that, that is very, very charged emotionally. I know I have a story idea. I don't know what it is yet, but I know I'm working on a story, and I go from there. So I explored this character, this woman who was a lawyer, and I wanted to make her a strong woman, very smart, but also she has all the human flaws (laughs) that you could possibly expect to find. And I needed to have somebody to balance her youth and inexperience. I didn't want to have it just another attorney relationship. And suddenly, again, this kind of mental theater that runs in my head, I saw her with the man who obviously had to be her father, and I knew I had them. So it went from there, out in all directions, from that first just glimpse of her addressing a jury. Did you uh, think about a series at the time? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, Kate Wilhelm, you are not a lawyer yourself, are you? Right. Uh, and this this raises a, a, an issue that arises uh, again and again. And of course, one does not have to be a cowboy to write a Western or right. an astronaut <laughs> to write a space story. But it seems to me that in an area of such complexity as the law must be fraught with with pitfalls for a non-lawyer writing such a novel. (laughs) How do you get it right? Well, you can do marvels with research. I wrote one novel um, about a woman um, who's a scientist and discovers some kind of a a scientific breakthrough. And I, I set the laboratory, I set all of the people in place and learned about the techniques they use. And two or three people asked me, you know, where did you work? What lab did you work in? They said, you got the details right. And one of the details somebody mentioned that was right is that part of this lab is in an old building where the floor tilts a little bit and everything round runs to one corner. She said, that's where I worked. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I think if you get little things that are right. People expect you to know the big things. And so I, I strive to get little things, not not the great big overall, because I don't know that. Do you have a lawyer who acts as a consultant? Not a consultant, but I have a lawyer friend who reads my finished manuscript mm-hmm. before I mail it off. And she tells me, no, this wouldn't work this way. This would be this kind of a judge or whatever. And I have a law dictionary and I have several other books of reference. Well, let's get to your new novel, uh, Malice Prepense. Mm. There are a number of legal concepts that come into play in this book. And let me throw a few out that confused me. And okay. I, there was one that really bothered me. And I, I'd like you to talk a little about this. In the book, there are three murders right. which appear related. They have the same M.O., or apparently have the same M.O., and yet a man is brought to trial for only one of them. Now, what struck me as odd is why didn't anybody say, wait a second, he couldn't have done the other two, therefore he probably didn't do this one because they all have the same M.O.? Well, in the first place, this happens a lot. 
if there are multiple murders and they can get somebody for one of them, they will. And then if they can link him in any way to the others, they will. And it wasn't ruled out absolutely in my book that he could not have done the others. He could have. I mean, physically, he could he have. He could have, yeah. Yeah. But this, I think, is uh, more often than not how this kind of thing would work, that get them for one, and then once you have a conviction, the other two convictions will be much easier. But trying to link three murders is too confusing to a jury, so they wouldn't. Well, your judge is a very prejudiced judge, and the second half of this book is a trial. And he is is one of the worst judges I have ever read about. I know that judge. <laughs> Do you really? <laughs> I saw that judge in action. <laughs> yes. Judges often, and in fact, over the past 10 or 15 years, they're often appointed by, well, people who are very conservative. And they're often from the prosecutorial side. And so if you have a, a very conservative prosecutor who then becomes a judge, he doesn't leave his belief systems behind. These are part of him. These are part and parcel of his makeup. And many of them will reflect whatever belief systems. Some of them are able to be very neutral despite their politics or their religious training or anything else, but some aren't. And when you get one who is a very hard-nosed a very conservative judge like this, he's going to show it. Well, it struck me through the course of reading the trial with other events occurring in your novel that it became clear to me at least fairly early on who done it mm -hmm. and why who done it. And it become, became fairly clear, though it's never explicitly stated, that both Barbara and Frank know this as well, particularly Barbara. She's figured it out fairly early on. And yet she makes no attempt to even go to the police to say, wait a second, I have an alternate suspect. I have a motive that makes a lot more sense. Why not? What would be the use? <laughs> the police have a, a man under arrest who is going to be tried. They have already uh, decided that this is what happened and this is why it happened. And she would be seeing as an, a defense attorney trying any ploy to get her client off. Lawyers don't do this. They wouldn't do that. She also does not really attempt to enter this alternative scenario into the field until her summation at the end. Is that normal? Barbara is not a prosecutor. She is not a detective. It is not her job to run down the killer. And if she does run down the killer in the course of defending her client, she will use that. She won't try to do the police work for them because they wouldn't believe her to begin with. They would dismiss anything she would say. And if she went in with this kind of scenario to the police, they would probably be ready to counter whatever defense she might arrange and plan. And so it would be self-defeating for her to do that. Her first and primary job is to get her client freed. This is what defense attorneys do. This, this is a subtext here <laughs> that I'm hearing from you, which is that once the police catch a suspect, whether that suspect is guilty or not, they don't care and they're going to just stop looking even if justice isn't served. This seems to be underlying this, what you're saying. I mean it to be right on top. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to be underlying anything. Uh, once the police have arrested somebody and have gone through that much work, it is almost 
generally accepted that they don't continue the investigation, except in that direction. And if someone else finds something out, they don't care? I wouldn't say they never care. And many police, of course, would care very much. But I think it's this is human nature. If you know what happened, then you can disregard all of these side trails because we understand we never know absolutely everything that happened. But they, they're satisfied. They know enough so they can disregard all of these other possibilities. There's a, a broader question that I'd like you to address, uh, Kate Wilhelm. There is an important suspect in this book, and I don't want to give away too much, um, a, a man, a grown man, but uh, due to an injury some years ago, uh, has the mind of an eight-year-old child. Uh, he's not crazy. Uh, he's not delusional, right. but he's just not more mature than that and right. presumably never never will be. Um, as I was reading this, I couldn't help thinking of a very recent case here in Northern California of a six-year-old boy who, with the assistance of two eight-year-olds, apparently this 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 younger child has innate leadership capabilities that that a six-year-old could could lead a gang of older children, uh, invaded a home, committed a petty burglary, and beat an infant an infant almost to death. Yes, I read this. Uh, the case is as yet unresolved, but. I, I couldn't help seeing a certain parallel between that and, and and the case in your book. And it raises some very, very troubling questions as to how the law treats children who commit criminal acts. This is troubling to everybody right now because it has popped up here and several other instances also. There's an, the case in Watts where the the child is accused of raping a girl, a 12-year-old boy, who is still a child legally. I mean, he is not an adult yet. And what to do about these cases is bothersome to everybody. You can't treat children as adults. You can't try them as adults. In fact, in, in England, a child is considered an infant until the age of seven. And infants absolutely are not responsible <laughs> What age does responsibility come in, which is something I was interested in here, an eight-year-old is not considered responsible. And I very carefully chose the age I wanted to use. Eight-year-olds have certain characteristics and responsibility for acts and foresight about the consequences just aren't possible for them. This six-year-old is incapable of considering consequences. My lawyer friend said, please, she knows, all say, they would much rather see, face a 16-year-old with a gun than a 14-year-old. A 14-year-old is considered not capable yet of considering the real consequences of behavior. A 16-year-old is. So at what age and how you deal with these younger children who really commit criminal acts and then you have to say, what is a criminal act in the mind of a child? Is it a criminal act? And I think psychologists and psychiatrists and child experts are going to be wrestling with this, oh, for a long time to come. There are no good answers. I don't have any. I don't know. There's a character in your book who's a uh, psychiatrist or psychologist, and he makes certain points regarding insanity, such as 
it doesn't exist. And I was wondering if, <laughs> if that was the opinion of Kate Wilhelm. I think insanity is we use it commonly. Uh, I also have him say, you know, everybody reads a book and becomes an expert. And, of course, that's what I do. I read a book and become <laughs> an expert. But the way we use insanity, I think, is, is probably very misleading. If my son does something that other kids don't like, they might say, oh, he's crazy. But he isn't crazy. <laughs> and so we use these terms just loosely and without any real meaning until they have lost their meaning. What does it mean to say somebody did a crazy thing? The psychiatrist, was the psychiatrist's words generally speaking about his profession and how people view it? Was that a, a way for Kate Wilhelm to discuss her own feelings? Everything in the book is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure, sure. I've been bothered with the idea of labeling people and then treating the labels for a long time because I think they're so misleading. And when does the label no longer apply? Uh, is a schizophrenic going to be a schiz all the life? <laughs> you know, when, when do you stop saying that? And what did it mean when you did say it? Is this teenager with troubles who is diagnosed schizophrenic really schizophrenic? Or is this a troubled teenager? So this has bothered me. And I found a mouthpiece. <laughs> do, you, do you find it easier in these uh, lawyer novels to use characters as mouthpieces? Or do you think it's something you've done from your entire career? I've always done it. <laughs> yeah. This is a good outlet. I think writers often find out what they think and find a way to say what they think through writing where they would never say that in any other situation. And for me, it's been a great outlet. I had a speech impediment as a child, and I was a middle child. So you have two strikes right there. You know, no, nobody pays attention to the middle child, and a middle child with a speech impediment, forget it. So I've found a voice through writing, and I can explore all the things that bother me. What happens when you come across a character whose philosophy is completely different from your own? Oh, I love them. That really is um, challenging because I try to be honest about it. You know, this is what they, they aren't acting out of <laughs> meanness or malice. They're, this is what they believe. So I really try to be honest about it and try to present both sides of questions. And I think we all have the, I like to look into the darker sides of everything including me, the darker sides of everything. If I were a Nazi, would I have helped build the concentration camp? You know, would I? And I'm, I would explore this. What inside Kate Wilhelm makes the choice between choosing uh, a lawyer novel, a fantasy short story, a science fiction novel in which to express her points? Is it merely the idea that comes to the surface first? I think... As I said, everything I write starts with this mental theater becoming activated. And if there's some emotional content to the pictures running through my head, I know I'm going to be working on something. I never know at that point what it's going to be. And more mental images accrue. And if there are bunches of them, I think, oh, I'm going to be writing a novel. And if it's very few and very intense, I think, oh, this is going to be a short story. But I seldom know at this point even, 
exactly what it's going to be, fantasy, science fiction. And these things just arise out of the characters. Uh, this character is involved in time travel. <laughs> For some reason, time travel seems appropriate. And so that's going to eventually become fantasy or science fiction. But I don't start out headed that way. That comes along sometime. What about the commercial considerations of writing another lawyer novel? Where do, wh what role do they play? You know, you've got three successful ones. Well, you have one of my books here, Heisman's Pets, that cost me an editor because I had been with Houghton Mifflin for quite a while and had, had a good relationship with my editor there. I don't write under contract, so she had no idea what I was writing. And when I sent her that one, she said, but what is it? I don't understand this, and I don't think we can do it, and like that, because she didn't understand it. And so somebody else did it. So the commercial success isn't what drives me. I mean, if it were, I would have done what she would expect. And I have lost Harper and Rowe. I've lost Forrest Rouse. I've lost a number, Simon & Schuster, <laughs> Houghton Mifflin. And all over this um, whole way of writing that I do with no contract, and I just present them with a manuscript that they either take or they don't. And if it isn't what they were looking for or what they expected because of the last ones, usually I have to go to another publisher. In other words, if if you if that feeling, that idea for another Barbara Holloway and Frank Holloway story does not arise, then we would not see another malice prepense at that point because That's you'd right. be off doing something else. That's right. I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to manufacture it out of nothing. I mean it would either be an idea that I felt compelled to write or or it won't get written. I heard a phrase a few minutes ago that, that really struck me. Actually, Richard, you used it in, in a question, but I'd like Kate to discuss it. Uh, and the phrase was, you come across a character who whatever. And, and, and I found that a very striking notion that rather than asking about when you as the author invent a character who – Instead, the concept of coming across oh, yeah. the character. What <laughs> yeah. about that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know how the imagination works. I don't know how the mind works. I know what people say. You know what they are finding out, synapses and all the uh, physical stuff. That doesn't tell me a thing about how the mind works. I said to a group of people one time, you know, all those pictures that keep going through your head, and they were. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> my my imagination is very, very visual. And so I will see people, and I will see them interacting with other people. They're people I don't know. I've never seen in my life. They're not composites. I wouldn't blend you two and have a new character. They're not composites. They're just people who suddenly seem to be inhabiting my head. And I don't know who they are. I don't know where they've come from, where they're going, what their intention is <laughs> walking onto my stage. And so when one of them really interests me, and it's always this emotional feeling I get for one of these that compels me to say, who are you? <laughs> where are you coming from? And where have you been? And what are you up to? And, and then I explore it. But I don't invent them so much as explore them because here they are people. <laughs> when this happens, do you, do you sometimes find yourself sitting there listening to or watching 
one of these characters and you're just absolutely astonished at what you see and hear? Oh, sometimes uh, they do astonishing things, yes. But after a while, after I really begin finding out more about these people, um, I become a director and I will have two or three people interacting. And if it isn't going right, I make them stop and start <laughs> over and stop and start over. This character out and somebody else in. And I do all of my writing away from the typewriter, the computer now, and keep running it through my head until it gets what I feel is right. <laughs> Whether or not it is, you know, is debatable, but it feels okay. And then I let that scene go and try another scene. So it's all this... Uh, imaginary stagecraft that I'm going through. So when you're sitting there uh, with your fingers on the keyboard, you're not really writing. You're just writing it down. I'm transcribing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, you talk about theater. Have you written plays? I've written some plays, and I've written a radio play. I love radio plays. Oh, you can do anything. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> you know, the clash of symbols, the beat of horse hoofs, everything. <laughs> Kate Wilhelm, you've now covered these different fields. Is there any other that, that you're just looking at and going, God, I wish I could try that? Oh, I wish I could write opera. <laughs> really? <laughs> but I can't. <laughs> did, did you ever chat with that about uh, with Tom Dish? About what? Writing opera? No, no. Do you, no. Do you know Tom? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, he, he's done some of that. He yeah. told me one time he'd written an opera of Frankenstein. I know. <laughs> which which was actually produced. Yeah. Um, I'd well, like... Tom could pull it off. <laughs> yes, if anyone could. Yes. <laughs> Kate Wilhelm, with Malice Prepense already written, do you have uh, – and already published – do you have another Holloway book uh, in the can? I am – well, I don't know. <laughs> At this moment, I don't know. I'm writing a novel right now, which is not a Barbara Holloway novel. And if you said, I'm going to beat you with spaghetti, if you don't tell me what it is, you'd have to start beating because I don't know. I can't classify it myself yet. I don't know what it's going to be. Psychological drama. <laughs> is it one of those things that's still rattling around your brain or do you I'm have writing pieces? It. Yeah, yeah. I don't write something until I have the entire thing in my head. And then I start writing. And when I start writing, I can start anywhere. It's like a big mosaic. And so I've written many scenes of this. I haven't joined them yet. That comes late in the game for me. So I've got lots and lots of scenes and some complete chapters. I'm writing it. You've been listening to an interview with the late novelist and short story writer Kate Wilhelm, who died in 2018 at the age of 89. It was recorded August 5, 1996, while she was on tour for her mystery novel, Malice Prepense, which was renamed For the Defense. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. This interview was digitized, remastered, and edited on February 3, 2024, and has not been heard in over 25 years. You can write to me, Richard Walensky, either at bookwaves at hotmail.com or richard at kpfa.org. You can find other Radio Walensky podcasts in the Area 941 section of kpfa.org, or you can go to bookwaves.homestead.com or richardwalensky.com for a complete listing of all digitized recordings. You can subscribe to Radio Walensky via iTunes or follow Richard Walensky radio shows on Facebook. Radio Walensky usually posts every week on Sundays. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky. <laughs>